So um, I said this morning, I just appreciate the worship team. Um, you would not believe when you watch them doing, leading that set that they had done a set already this morning, that they come with such passion and energy and there's like no holding back. And so just appreciate you guys again for the way that you serve us. And uh, Robin, I hope that you sleeping in the back of that video announcement was not a foretaste of what's to come for while I'm preaching today. So I'm back from Zimbabwe. Some of you didn't even notice that I'd gone. Thanks very much for your love and your care. But for those of you that did, um, I have been away for almost a month, two weeks. I got to see my boys for a few days in South Africa, which was outstanding. I'm so grateful to have, have had that opportunity. And then got to go to Zimbabwe for two weeks and minister there and saw some amazing things. Just grateful to God for what He's doing. Although I was forced to be there for two weeks because... Dubai doesn't love South Africans. It's just the way it is at the moment. That um, uh, it was—it actually turned out to be an amazing time to be able to really linger there and uh, enjoy our time. It is wonderful to see you all. You are an amazing bunch of people. And uh, as I look around the hall and I just see some of the stories, uh, Victor, good to see you back again, bro. Nice to see you. I think of how incredible it is that God would bring us together like this. And uh, I've got the privilege of, of bringing one announcement today, and that is around eldership. I want to read one scripture to you from Acts chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. You can trust me. I'm a pastor. Well, they preached the good news, that says in verse 21, in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. How's that for an encouraging message, eh? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And um, it goes on and says this, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting and committed them to the Lord, to whom they had put their trust. And uh, one of the um, responsibilities we believe we have is to raise up um those that are called into the office of eldership and bring them into that office. And we're going to be putting before you two couples that we believe God has called to eldership, that we believe are ready for eldership. And in a moment, I'll introduce them to you. And uh, what we're wanting to do as we introduce them is, is put them before you for your perspective. So we have prayed. Honestly, we've prayed. Nobody comes onto eldership unless we as an eldership team, um, the guys together with our wives, are unanimously in agreement that God has called them into that office. We then submitted to um, the apostolic um, the apostle and the, and the team that are with them that we are submitted to, and we ask having, them having met with these people, do they feel this is the right step? And, um, and then only when we've got to that point do we come and present it to you guys. And the reason why we present them is because we, we do want your perspective. We're not going to um, change our minds if you go, yeah, Rob, I just don't feel like it's the right time for them to be on eldership. We appreciate your opinion, but we don't care. Um, but if you come to us and say, Rob, we believe there's a biblical disqualification for them coming onto eldership, that we will pay attention to, obviously, because they're going to be responsible for eldering you. And so we do want men and women that qualify biblically, um, both for the guys to be elders and the wives to serve alongside them in the office of eldership. It doesn't mean that they're experienced because they're coming on to eldership. They're going to grow in that stuff. Um, and you will grow to see um, all of the gift that is upon them. But right now, you just need to recognize the call upon them. Normally, when we do this, 
It should be something that actually you're ready, you kind of nod and you go, yeah, that makes sense to me because um, I think they've been carrying this. I've been seeing them around doing this. Um, we normally call people onto eldership that in many ways are already eldering. And so without further ado, the two couples that we believe God has called us to bring on, and neither of them have their wives here at the moment. They are not two single men. They are not a couple. They have wives. But it's, um, so Noel and Geraldine, why don't you come out, Noel? And Dylan and Robin. So I want to say this. We don't think that eldership is like that's the pinnacle of serving God. I mean, obviously, because most people are not called to be on eldership. And so we believe that actually being faithful to whatever it is that he's called us to is the pinnacle of serving God. That every one of us will arrive before God one day, having fulfilled the role that we're in, and hear those words, good and faithful servant. This is a role that they're called to. And if they fulfill this world, they'll hear those words as well, even as you hear those words over your life. Yet we also believe that eldership is, a, is, a, is an important part of the life of the church, especially as we gather as the elders are responsible for setting the doctrine of the church, or rather for guarding the doctrine of the church, for um, setting the direction of the church and administrating discipline, taking care of the flock as well. And so it is important. We don't want to make more out of it than we should, but nor do we want to make less out of it than we should as well. And so I wonder if you can just appreciate these guys right now. So you've got two weeks. Okay, um, I'm going to encourage you to be praying for them and their wives over these next two weeks. When Chris and Meryl are here on the 18th of this month, they will um, lay hands upon these two guys together with their wives and will set them into the office of elder. And um, we do believe the scripture teaches, as we read there, that Paul and Barnabas, and uh, two apostles, that apostles actually set elders in office. And so we follow the biblical pattern. We just think that it's cool to do what the Bible says, you know. And so that'll take place. If you want to speak to me or Matt or Sajith or Wayne, if he ever comes back from South Africa, he's due to be back for this. Um, or our wives, you can do that. If you've got questions or concerns, you're welcome to come and talk to us about them. We Hopefully we'll be able to help you process some of the stuff. But if you've got biblical, as I said, real biblical concerns, we, we're ready to hear from you. I don't believe that they're there. But if they are, we'd rather you come speak to us. But bless you guys. Thanks so much. So normally on Emirates Airlines, hey, their the music is so familiar to us. Hey, as soon as you hear the music, you feel like you're back in an aeroplane again. Some of you haven't heard it for a long time. Um, but uh, one of the things they say on the airlines is, is sit back and get comfortable. And um, I want to say to you today, sit back and get uncomfortable. I really want what I preach today and for you guys that are online as well to make us uncomfortable. I feel like God wants to come today and put us in a place where the routine we've got into, the rut we've got into, or the plans that we've made for our life, that God come and shake those things and uh, do something fresh with our lives. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The title of my message is out of that scripture this morning, which is to do justice. And um, I think you guys know that um, 
coming out of December 2020 and into January 2021, I felt like God speak to me three words, and there was the gospel, presence, and justice. And over this, these nine weeks, we actually are visiting each of those things. The gospel, we've done, the three weeks are done, and I'm the last of the three weeks on justice, and then we're going to move into three weeks on the presence of God. And um, I, fr- I think, friends, if you know me, you know the, p- the priority I place upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it is the most important thing that could possibly um, any person could ever encounter and make a decision about. I'm convinced when Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, when he says, what is a profit of man if he gains a whole world but forfeits his soul? I, I think that is a profoundly important warning. That it doesn't matter what we accomplish in this life, no matter how extraordinary a life we get to live, if we do not come to know Jesus Christ, it counts for nothing. And that means that if we were to rescue someone from poverty, take them from some of the most difficult circumstances and bring them into a place where they come to enjoy amazing prosperity and, and wonderful pleasures in this life, but if they never came to Jesus Christ, then even the greatest of pleasures will feel like just the staircase that leads to hell. But at the same time, if we go to somebody else and, we, um, and we, they, we lead them to Christ, even if they were never to shake off the difficulties they were in, even if they were subject to, to great suffering, as they look back from the standpoint of heaven on the greatest suffering, it would feel like just the early shores of heaven that were beginning to wash over them. Because our decision for Christ shapes everything. It, like our whole lives are different because Jesus has come in. It, it affects our past and how we see everything in our past and everything into our future as well. And so I do see there is nothing more important that we can do on the face of this earth than to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And that has to be our priority. But I believe that doing justice goes hand in hand with the gospel the same way I'll try to think of an example this morning and bacon and eggs came into my mind. It's not the greatest example of two things that should go together, although I don't ever have eggs without bacon or bacon without eggs, so maybe it's an amazing example. But that the gospel, the preaching of the gospel and living a life of justice must go together. Why? Well, because God is a God of justice. The psalmist says on a number of occasions that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It means that the God's throne won't stand without justice. It will topple over if he were to be unjust, if he were not to be just. So it's not like God acts in a just way. It's not like he can decide to be just or unjust. He is just. And so we too should be, as we seek to be like our Father, we should be the carriers of of justice as well. In the same way that we are the the ones who, who bring love, into the world because God is love, or holiness because God is holiness, we should bring justice into the world around us. When God spoke to me at that time in December about justice, I felt like there were two aspects that that he was speaking about. The first one is kind of this global justice or this macro justice. So not what happens in our neighborhood necessarily, but what is happening across the face of the earth. And I believe the call there is to challenge the systems that perpetuate injustice in society. They can be criminal systems, political systems, judicial systems, financial systems, but we are called to actually challenge those systems because they create an unjust society. I think of things like, like massive things. that, like Sometimes when you think about it, you think, this is too big. Like, Rob, why are you even talking about this? What can we possibly do about it? Like genocides by dictators and ideologues 
like in Nazi Germany and in Russia and in Cambodia and Rwanda and Zimbabwe where thousands, even millions of people are killed because of an ideology. Things like the profound evil of apartheid in South Africa, the ongoing persecution of religious minorities in China and other nations, the absolutely appalling human trafficking um, run by syndicates that are connected with the politically high up and the rich, like, like the tragedy of that is just is beyond my, my, my brain's capacity to even comprehend. And then other things that are mainstream and accepted in society, like the abortion industry. There is so much injustice around us in every generation. You, you can go back throughout human history. It, it's there all the time. And it's no wonder the prophet Jeremiah cries out to God and he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And David makes the same lament in so many of the Psalms that he writes, why, Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why? Like, I look around me and I see, I see wickedness and they're and they thriving. But as so often happens in the Psalms, as, as David writes, he actually leads the congregation on a journey to the answer that God actually has. And he does the same in Psalm 37. In verse 1, and tied into verses 14 and 15, I've kind of put them together, he says something like this. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, the wicked who draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways upright, for their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. You see, there's this promise that comes to us so that we, we, we can have this absolute certainty that justice will be done. That at the end of the day, injustice will be punished. The wicked will face a terrible judgment. And so for, for, uh, for every single person that has faced injustice and every single person whose heart breaks because of injustice, we can be reassured. We can be strengthened in the knowledge that justice will be done. That it either will be done in Jesus Christ. For the, the genocidal maniac who as an absolute act of God's grace, comes to salvation and puts his trust in Jesus Christ. That, that sin of his, that genocide, the suffering, that, that the wickedness that was his is put upon Jesus Christ upon the cross and he bears the punishment. Justice is served. God never takes and says, you just need to leave it now. You were the victim of injustice. We're going to just sweep it under the carpet. It's always dealt with. Justice is always done. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. God took men like David and women like Esther, uh, kings like Josiah, prophets like Elijah and Samuel. He's used men like Abraham Lincoln and William Wilberforce to become instruments of justice on this global scale. Men that have, and women that have, that have changed everything. And he might be calling some of you to that to, today. There might be some of you that are sitting here that have got like a righteous anger that begins to be stirred whenever you see situations like that. Maybe God's calling you to be someone that fights in that arena. James called Elijah an ordinary man. And some of us, we just, we're ordinary. We think, well, how can God use me? I'm just an ordinary person. But if God is stirring you, you need to lay hold of it. Some years ago, 15, I think now, Linda and I were leading a church in Durban called The Rock, in a, in a suburb in, in Durban. And we had a, a, quite a big group of, of young adults in our church that were kind of just on the periphery, not, not getting engaged and, and leaving a mark. You know? 
And so we called them together one evening. We met in the church. It was a hall like this, and we, we played a video. It was like a, a movie night for them. And we played the, the, the movie Amazing Grace, the story about William Wilberforce and how this group really changed history and um, the reality of life for, a whole, for, for the whole planet, actually, in many ways. And then the next week we met with them again and we played a video that had been made by two young South African guys that had gone off to, I can't remember if it was Thailand or Cambodia, and with secret cameras that videoed what is going on in the underage sex trade to expose it. And I, and I said to them, like, yes, there's two ordinary guys from South Africa that are making a difference. What can you do to make a difference? What is it that, that you can bring? And, and there was such a diversity of skills and gifts in the room. There was probably 15 or 20 of them. And um, these young people, they came up with the idea of starting an anti-human trafficking movement. And it's a, an organization called Red Light. And uh, I went and checked. It's still going today. They're still working amongst, probably not one of those people that started it are still involved. Maybe, maybe one, the, um, Natalie. But the rest are actually, um, have gone on with other things. But they've started and they continues to bear fruit to, to this day. And... Um, and it, that might be you. As God stirs you up, you might start something. They started really small. They started by holding a golf day to raise some money so that if somebody was caught in human trafficking and came out of it, that they would be able to release and um, support them and help them come back into society again. And from that, this ministry, there it is there, continues to grow. But while some of us are called to fight in these arenas, all of us are called to engage the dark forces that prop up these systems of wickedness. I'm, I'm persuaded the biggest contribution that the church can make is to contend before the throne of God, is to pray and, and um, uh, yeah, fight for the deliverance in those situations and fight until we actually see it take place. God raises up an Esther that will go before the king, but behind Esther, the people of God are fasting and praying, and it's that that brings her success as she fulfills that role. And so wherever it is that God would raise up from the ranks of um, the Christian family or even outside of that to take on these battles, we need to be praying against those mountains so they become like blows against them and bring them to the ground. Doesn't Paul remind us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood? We, we so often think it's that person or that person or that person, but actually there are spiritual forces behind those people and behind those ideologies that we need to fight against. He says our, our battle is actually against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I have a feeling that we're about to see God bring down some mountains. I, I've, I've been feeling this for this whole year, that we are going to see some mountains come down. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. This mountain of communism in the Soviet Union that was impenetrable, like Nuclear threats could not bring it down. The Berlin Wall falls, and one by one, the Soviet Union begins to break open, and this, this mountain of communism in Russia is brought to the ground. In the same year in South Africa, F.W. de Klerk became president of South Africa. In, within two years, he would release Nelson Mandela, and within five years, South Africa would have its first democratic elections. This mountain of apartheid that seemed like it could never come to the ground falls to the ground. I believe God wants to do some of those things again, and we need to be a church praying into those very things. Pray for the people of Zimbabwe. There's a great injustice 
happening in that nation, as in many other nations of the earth, we need to be praying for God to act. But I believe the biggest arena for us as a local church to be able to serve is actually in the second aspect God told me about. And that's our practical and personal engagement with and care for the poor and disenfranchised. You see, God calls the church again and again to care for the widow and the orphan and the refugee. And God uses them as a picture of the powerless ones. Who are the powerless ones in our society that we should be serving? Who are the powerless ones in society that we should be contending for? One of the ministries that we started supporting this year as a church, thank you for being a part of that, is this one here, Lungusani and Lela, which actually, Lungusani means prepare and Lela the way, prepare the way. And what they do is they run um, after-school programs, school support programs, whatever. And they, they run a safe house. They do so much. But um, I got, when they sent the information to me, they sent me this letter. It's from a um, Nonvelo Lamini, young girl. She could be one of these. I don't know if she has any of those. She could be. Imagine she's one of those girls there. And she writes this letter. She says, Dear Lungasani and Lela, I saw it necessary for me to write this letter. I write this letter to show appreciation for everything you all did for me. It's not just the Texans that say that, Morgan. I wish I could do more than just writing a letter to let you see how thankful I am. First, I would like to thank God the Lord Almighty for blessing me with such amazing people. Do you know, you know what she was the recipient of? Her school fees were paid. She gets 200 rand a month for her school fees. It's 50 dirham a month. That's what she's thanking them for. It was God. I would like to thank the Lord God Almighty for blessing me with such amazing people. It was all His plan and intention to, for me to meet the Lungusadli and Lela organization. I want to thank you all for all the contributions you made in my life, more especially my sponsor for paying my school fees from grade 8 to grade 12. Somewhere I was trapped along the way. And I failed grade 11, and I had to repeat the year. But you never gave up on praying my fees. Like, what a silly little thing, hey. But for her, somebody didn't give up. You know? This is, this is the, like where, the, where we get to do justice, where the rubber meets the road. Surely, surely I would not be where I am now without your assistance. I pray that you continue to offer the same kind of help to other needy children as I was. And she continues. You see, God is not calling us to think about justice. He's not calling us to talk about justice. He's not calling us to have meetings about justice. He's not calling us to write papers about justice. He's calling us to do justice. It's an action word. It's a, it's a, it's a command for us to act, to get up out of our seats, to... Like, I love the fact that in Scripture, two of the most powerful words are the shortest words. Go and do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Do justice. The, James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us that faith without works is dead. It's not that we have to like, like prove our faith by the things that we do. What he's saying is that if you truly are saved, if, you, if your heart has truly been changed, if, if the, the heart of stone has been taken and a heart of flesh put in, if the commands of God have been written in our hearts and in our minds, if we have become a new creation, if we are adopted in the family of God, how can that not issue in these works of justice and whatever else comes out of it? 
So what does it look like for us? How do we, how do we take the first steps? And there's so many ways, friends. You can go on a trip once stinking COVID has taken off the face of this earth. Be gone in Jesus' name. I wish that worked. And um, I, it, get out there. Get into Greece and work with the refugees. Go into Sri Lanka and visit the rehab center and work with broken men. Get into Live Village in, in South Africa or in Lela um, um, Safe House uh, in Durban, wherever it is. Take the step into the, into the labor camps just around the corner. Go into Sonapur or, or here in our coos, in, in our labor camps right now. Let's step into what God has called us to. But I think it starts with dealing with the sinful attitudes that cause us to be blind to justice and even the perpetuators of injustice. The call upon the Christian is, I think we all agree, to be like Jesus. Be like the one that we love. Be like our king that we sang about. Majesty, majesty, to be like this king that we love. And so three points around that. Number one, Jesus was courageous. And we must deal with fear and anxiety. I mean, I think you would agree that, that fear can be paralyzing. Some people are going on fine in their life. They're moving along and suddenly something comes into them, causes them to be fearful or anxious and they, they freeze. They, they can't move anymore. They can no longer function the way that they're called to function. And so the devil stirs up. He stokes fear in us so that we won't do what God has called us to do. And, and so often the fear is around like real things, like normal things. I mean, like, like what about my child's education or, or what about my, like my, my, my savings for when I'm old one day so that I'm not a problem for my children? Or, you know what I mean? Like normal, like say, what about my, the security of my family or my personal health? Or they, they seem like such normal things. And the devil turns those things and turns them into fears in our lives. I saw such a great example of courage this week while I was in Zimbabwe with this couple that have, that have um, planted a church, Evesi and Sumin, Bundavesthazen. You couldn't get a more South African name than that. And um, uh, Vesi and Sumin were, in a, uh, they were on eldership in a church in Johannesburg in an affluent area. And they had been working with me to take, it was whatever it was, 12 years ago, whatever that is. We were taking food into Zimbabwe because of the drought that was there and people were starving. And by God's grace, millions of rands came in so that we were able to get food up there. At the end of that effort, Vesi and Sumin felt God was calling them to move up there. Now, Zimbabwe has gone through 20-something years of the most terrible leadership a nation could have. They have Mugabe, who was the president, literally committed genocide. He killed tens of thousands of the Ndebele people. Um, he completely broke down any hope in that economy. Like the, you drive on roads, I mean, literally, that have not been touched for 20-something years. Got, there are more potholes in Zimbabwe than there is sand on the seashore. It's unbelievable. Like most places, they should just get rid of the tar completely. And there's good reason, you would think, for people to be running out of a nation like that. And as people are running out, Vesi and Sumin are, are, are working against the title, walking back into that nation. They walk into the place to carry the gospel. They're dancing to a different tune. They, they're walking in the opposite spirit to what we see around us. The truth is, friends, those fears that we have, God is our provider. He's the one that provides education for our children, and He's the one that provides the finances that we need to be able to survive whatever age we are. And He's our provider, whether we're in the office or in the orphanage, whether we're in Africa or wherever, America. One of the great examples of this was some 
Some time ago, Linda sent me this article on Facebook, the source of all great knowledge. And, uh, and um, I remember sitting at home one morning in, in my lounge reading it, just crying as I read this article. I was thinking about my daughter, Hannah. <laughs> so it was a story about a young girl called Sarah Portal. I think she was about 21 at the time. She starts her story. and um, She was led. She had planned to go study overseas and what a, what a, what a. Her mom got sick with cancer, so she delayed her trip. She ended up meeting this young English guy. So um, this guy had felt a real calling to minister to the completely broken. While she's nursing her mother, she begins a relation, falls in love with him. And her mother sadly passes away. And this young guy feels called into the township. They get married. She takes her mother's inheritance. And she doesn't go by... Um, a house in one of the beautiful suburbs of Cape Town, and there are some beautiful suburbs in Cape Town. She chooses to go with her husband and buy a home in Manaburg, which is one of the, the townships the, um, in, in Cape Town that is known for drug and alcohol addiction, brokenness, gangs, violence, domestic violence. It's just, there's so much brokenness. Like, I, I wouldn't even want to drive through there most of the time. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't. If my daughter phoned me, and I was thinking about this, if Hannah phoned me and said, Dad, I'm moving to Manaburg, I'd go, what, are you insane? <laughs> Baby, no, what's going on here? You know? And I knew, the reason why I was crying, because I knew God was telling me that, that whatever he does call Hannah to, I need to let her do it. We need to let our daughters do dangerous things. We've got to be courageous, not fearful. I'm going to go back to that story in a moment. Secondly, Jesus was generous. So we must deal with greed and the poverty mindset. I don't think we ever read anywhere in Scripture where Jesus gives money away. But he does. In his ministry, Judas had the responsibility of the person, and it said that they obviously gave money to the poor. So obviously money did flow. But we never read anywhere where Jesus goes and gives money. It's not the example he's setting for us. But he, but he is the most generous man on earth because he gave himself. And you know, Paul, Paul writes to, um, to the church in Corinth, and he tells them about these Macedonian believers. He says... He speaks of them in their absolute poverty. In their utter poverty, they gave. And he's talking about they gave a financial offering. But then he says in one of the verses, he says, he says what's amazing though is they didn't give in the way that we expected. He says, first, they gave themselves to God. And friends, before we start writing checks out, and, and it's fine, write your checks out, I don't mind, but you're just getting nothing in return. It's, do you know what I mean? It's like what God's wanting is we give ourselves first. Like, God, you can have me. You can have my plans, you can have my career, you can have my children, you can have my marriage, you can have my home, you can have, I'm giving it to you. That's what the generosity that God wants, and that's when we can begin to do justice. We've got to break a poverty mindset that, that leaves us thinking that we never have enough, or even a power mindset that no matter how much we've got, we feel like we must have more. They once asked someone, one of the, these billionaires, how much is enough? And he says, just a little more. Always just a little more. God, break that from us. Lastly, Jesus saw people. And we must remove our blinders. You know, sometimes we come into the auditorium like this and we, we're so aware of ourselves that we don't see other people. We, either we, we, we're too full of ourselves and we kind of walk into the room like this, like, I hope everyone sees that I'm here now. The amazing one has arrived. You know what I mean? Like, Woohoo! I'm here, everyone, like this. And so you're so worried about everyone seeing you that you don't see anybody else. Or in your insecurity, you come into the room and you're like, 
oh, I wonder what they're thinking about me. I'm sure they're thinking I'm, I'm this or I'm that. And they're not. They're worrying about what you think of them. But, but what would it be like if we walked into the room and we saw other people? We're not worrying about ourselves. We're not worrying about what people think about us or whether they see us or notice us, but we seeing other people. And Jesus saw people. One of the most wonderful things about him is that he saw people. He saw Zacchaeus in the tree, in the midst of the crowd. He saw him there. Nobody else would see the short little guy hiding in the tree. He saw Nicodemus who came to him in the darkness of the night. He saw through the fact that he was a religious Pharisee, he saw this man as a seeker of the truth. He saw the widow who was carrying her dead son out of the city and he had compassion upon her. In Luke, 70, Luke 7 we see that he saw the sinful woman. That's how the Bible describes her. The woman who had led a sinful lifestyle, who had washed her, his feet with, with, with her tears and dried her feet with her hair. And the Pharisee points out, like in his mind he's thinking, like if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Because the Pharisee didn't see her, he saw her sin. Jesus saw her. And Jesus calls us into this life of humility that enables us to see the people around us. Seeing always precedes compassion. And compassion is love and action. If you don't see, you won't have compassion. Some people see in inverted commas, but they don't really see. When we see people, then God leads us into action. One of the most obvious blockages to us seeing people is the sinful attitude of racism. Now, there is so much been written about this and so much going on. I think a whole lot of what's been said is around uh, making political points and like agendas and other things, but it doesn't change the fact that we are fallen human beings and that racism is one of the things that plagues the way that we function. And the, the worst thing about it is that it, it blinds us to seeing other people. It blinds us to seeing what other people are going for. We see somebody different from us suffering and we discount it because they're not the same as us. Because, because of something like the, the, the crane of God just coming with his paintbrush and, and touching different people with different tones upon their skin, it leads us to, that we would think anything different about these brothers and sisters that God has given us. And it's not just racism. We can find all sorts of excuses. It could be gender. It could be differences in class. It could even be differences in religion that cause us to stop seeing people. And instead, we need to see every single person as someone created in the image of God. I'm going to play a video for you now. It's actually the story of that girl, Sarah Portal, um, who married this guy called Pete. And they went into this township. And uh, the story is actually about this guy called Morawan. And he's, uh, he's like the, um, the person that you would least care about. He's a drug addict. Um, he's a, he's a, a thief. He's a, just brokenness. And Sarah and her husband bring him into their home to care for him. And... Um, I want to show you how courage and generosity and seeing people opens a door for us to do justice. Why don't you play it for us, please? My name is Marawan. I'm the middle son of six siblings. Growing up in Minenburg, for me, it wasn't easy. 
I've been exposed to a lot of things at a young age. Violence, drugs, gangsterism. My father wasn't present in my life. My mom was also drinking. That's why I looked up to the guys on the streets. Captain in the I started using drugs at the age of 14. Men drugs, crystal meth. I did heroin, feeling like I'm the best in the world, but I don't look like the best. I look like someone who's living on the streets. My mother once started being aggressive and violent when he was around about 13, 12 years old, and he stabbed his mother's boyfriend for hurting his mom. Pas bij hem moet ik zijn, moet op je keren. Al voor je toe wordt gewisseld, dus die tijd toen nog een terraks. En dat is al een super tijd aan toch maar aan, toen wordt gewoon met te slepen, maar was het even iemand anders dat hem gereed had, ja, was het tijd, dit al. There's a funny story about Marwan and Leon. The time they first met was six years ago, when Marwan was still using heroin. I met these three gentlemen walking beside me. And the one had a knife on me, while the other two was searching my pockets, and one of them was Marwan. I just spoke to them, spoke to them under the love and the kindness of Jesus. <laughs> so five years after the mugging, Leon's totally forgotten about it, but it's obviously stuck with Marwan because when he turns up at church one evening and Leon's there, his heart starts racing and he realizes, I need to reconcile with this guy. I forgot about the whole incident. He says, you know, the words that you said that night never left me, it stayed with me. So in our work with gangsters and drug addicts, one of the things we realized was we needed a residential intervention for these guys to actually have a place that's safe and calm and gang neutral for them to come off drugs and out of gangs. So we set up Crew 62, this transformational community house. We base it on a family model, so it's really small. We run a nine to five program, but have a lot of family elements as well. The biggest part of it is our spiritual discipleship. Dwayne and Marawan had a friendship going all the way back to early childhood. And before we had set up Crew 62 House, Marawan had actually approached Dwayne because he had noticed this complete transformation in Dwayne's life. Marawan knew me before I got clean. He knew me in my addictive days. He knew how I looked, how I was. One day I saw my brother's friend, a very changed person. He didn't use anymore. Immediately I told myself, that is what I want. I don't want to use anymore. I don't want to hurt my family and hurt people around me. I saw Marawan going and begging, walking with Vince, trying to just earn to use. He was desperate to get out of it. I told him that I need this, so I created that opportunity. I told him that I'm ready. Marawan was one of the first intakes, so we were still kind of trying to learn how to do things. And one of the things we did have faith for was that Jesus is more powerful than addiction. You unravel me. It wasn't easy for me coming into the discipleship house because I was still in pain. I was cold talking. He hadn't smoked the morning he came in, which was one of his like funny moments of you guys came before he was ready because he planned to take a hit before he arrived. He was really, really sick. He was throwing up, hot, cold fever. His whole body was shaking. Shaking so much that the bed literally shook with him. The third day, I remember I was laying in bed and I told myself, this is the day I had enough of this pain. I will run off and, and go use again. Once a month, we hold worship nights at the coffee shop around the corner that we run. 
And Marwan came ultimately because Sarah kept bugging him. I went to um, went to him. He was wrapped up in his little bed, and I said, "Like Marwan, would you like to come to worship?" And he said, "No, he didn't want to." And I walked away, and then I went back again because I just felt like he needs to come. I don't know why, but I just had that feeling that. I need to go. And I was laying there and I told myself that if you ran off, you will just go back and how will you be able to become someone better than you used to? So I went back and I said, are you sure you don't want to come? Like, just come for 30 minutes. He was a Muslim guy, he had just come into the house. He didn't know what all of this was about. But to his credit, he wrapped himself in a duvet and, and, and came. I see this crowd of happy people. I heard that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. The words of that song just ran through my mind continuously. And I was realizing that I don't want to be a slave no longer of drug addiction. I don't want to be a slave of the devil anymore to hurt people. And as the song started playing, Marwan threw off his duvet, jumped into the middle of the room and just said, pray for me. Something just came and touched me and I stood up without feeling a pain or without feeling anything. The pain just completely left, all of his symptoms left, his fever stopped, everything. Instantly healed of all of his withdrawals, all of his cold turkey. I was telling the people around me, I'm not feeling the pain anymore. What is going on? What is happening to me? I couldn't understand it. I was jumping around and dancing. I can't explain it apart from it was just the anointing of the Holy Spirit to heal this guy who was utterly poor in spirit, utterly dependent on a touch from Jesus. I came into the house as a Muslim and it was a bit difficult for me. As time went on, I start seeing how Jesus transformed people's life around me. One evening, a group of men turned up at the gate and uh, kind of interrogated Marwan and said, are you going to mosque, are you doing this and that and all these um, Muslim rituals? And he said, no, I'm not anymore. At the end of that, I was sitting in the house with Marwan. I said to him, um, so what did, what did you say to them? And he said, well, they asked me if I believe the Bible's true. And I said, what did you say? And he said, well, how can I deny the truth of the Bible? Because what I read in scripture, I'm seeing happen in my day-to-day -day life. I was feeling loved all the time. That made me hold on to recovery. When someone experiences and encounters Jesus, everything changes. And in the middle of the night, I may watch you go. I'm grateful to walk this walk. And I believe this walk is going to change many lives. We are not going to change the lives, but Jesus is going to be An anti-crime activist who died in a car crash has been lauded as an inspiration to the youth. 21-year-old Marwan Scullard was knocked down by a car in Johannesburg last week. Take what you the day when I heard that Marwan died, it was hard. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to accept it at all. It's crazy. I don't get it. It was tragic. We're still reeling from the whole thing. We're all devastated. He was really, really loved. Grief's a bizarre process of ups and downs, and we have no answers to why it happened, but what we do know is that Marwan died doing what he was passionate about. And he could say that he was living for something that was worth dying for. And I don't think there's any better way to go than that, honestly. I think that the legacy that 
Marwan's life has left behind is one of great hope. He was able to break the chains of addiction, break the chains of old behaviors. Marwan had any excuse he could think of for why change and why coming to know Jesus isn't possible. I didn't know him before he came into the house, but people tell stories of how terrible he was, what a nightmare he was, how he thieved and robbed and mugged people. If Marwan's life teaches us anything, it's that anyone, no matter how bad or addicted or violent they are, can belong in a community of people following Jesus, be changed, and then do something meaningful to give back. What he had hoped was that he could share his story around the world and that people would take hope and take courage. That's what we want to do is we want to tell his story even now that he's gone. saying this morning, you make me brave. You make me brave. My exhortation to you is to be brave, to live brave. I, uh, I said this morning, I hope it didn't come across as judgmental. I'm so sick and tired of people moving to Canada. I'm serious. I mean, maybe you plan to go there, but why are we not going to the broken? I mean, I'm, Canada needs God, obviously. But are people moving there for God or they're moving there because it's comfortable and easy and allays their fears? When God actually calls us to be brave, He calls us to be courageous and generous. And maybe we should be saying, God, won't you open a door for me to get into the most broken places, the darkest places? Won't you use my life where I can make a difference? I was talking to a pastor this week about another church in Zimbabwe where the, the guy that's been leading it has come to, he can't lead it, he's just too tired, he's been leading for a number of years and working full-time. I said, well, why don't you ask in your movement for somebody to come there and come lead the church? He said, Rob, if it was a church in America or Australia, I'd have a dozen people putting their hands up. He said, because it's Zimbabwe, I hear crickets, nobody's coming. And so my challenge to us today, for the Marwans that are out there, that now... He stands before God as his son. I, I, that's not, I'm not saddened by his death. I'm just so grateful he met God before he died. What a wonder. Because Sarah was brave enough to move into a place she should never have gone into. And yet is exactly where God wanted her to be. Do justice. Why don't you stand with me, please? Friend, if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus Christ that changed Marwan's life and my life and the lives of most people in this room, if you're religious and you come to church and you know, you know stuff about God, but you've never met this Jesus that we sing about and love, then this morning 
you need to come into a saving relationship with Him. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not about joining a church or doing a discipleship course. It's about coming to Christ and depending upon Him alone. And if that's you, don't leave this room without coming to see me this morning, please, or one of the elders or the person you came with, and say, can I have a talk about what it means to be saved, about how to meet Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And what a profound privilege it would be for me to pray with you and lead you in that prayer of salvation. For the rest of us, I want to pray a dangerous prayer over us. Father, I pray for these men and women that are standing before me today, and I pray for myself. A young man came to me after the meeting today and said, you guys take this seriously. God's, he said, God's taking all the BS out of my life. And Lord, my prayer is that you would take all of the dross, all of the, the things in our lives that, that cover up, Lord God, this new heart and this passion to see the world changed. Lord, I know, of course, we can do it. Yeah, I must do it. Yeah, and it must happen in Canada and America and Australia. But Lord, I pray as well that it would happen in those deepest, darkest places of this earth, Lord God, that you might call us to. I pray that we would make the decisions based not on what is safest and most comfortable and makes most sense. I pray that we would move in the opposite spirit. I pray that we would go to the places where people are leaving because that's the very place you want us to be. And I pray that you would stir us up today, Lord God, that we might do justice in our neighborhood, Lord God, in, our, in, in the neighborhood of this church around us, in these, in these labor camps that are around us, Lord God. That we would do justice in the places that you have us work in, to Sri Lanka and India, Nepal and Pakistan and Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Malawi and how many nations of the earth, Lord God. I pray for us to be a church Lord God, that is an instrument of justice in your hand, Lord God. Lord, we leave to you the rod of justice, Lord God. We want to be the arm, Lord God, that carries the love of Christ, that restores, that brings equity and fairness in society, Lord God. Would you help us, Lord God, to be that, I pray. And I pray for every single person that's here today, that this morning that you would have shaken their lives, Lord, that you would have changed their destiny, that you would give them fresh callings for what it is that you would have us do on this earth, Lord God. I pray, as uh, Pete Bortle said there, Lord God, that he, um, he, was, he died for something that was worth dying for. And I pray, Lord God, that we would find something that's worth living for, that, that, that every single person here has a call upon their lives to make a difference. And so I call them to that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Let's appreciate Him.